You know the vibes. Welcome back to another episode of the Hoop Genius Podcast brought to you by NBA 2K24. Myself, Mumuzi, alongside me as always, the three-time NBA champion and making his weekly return. The man who goes by the name of Parking Lot Perry as he shoots from way downtown. General manager extraordinaire, Mr. Scott Perry. How you guys doing? Yeah, man, doing great, Mo. I, I haven't been called that before, but I'll take your it from name you. on this show. Yeah, I'll the take fans it already you. started calling you that, so that's it now. That's it. Now, I, I wanted to start this week's episode, you know, talk about Parking Lot Perry. We're talking about shooting from downtown. I wanted to get your list of the top five players it, right now in the NBA. If the game is on the line, who do you want taking that final shot? Mr. Perry, you go first. A few things that I'm looking for when I when I put my top five together. The guy obviously has got to be able to score from all three levels. He's got to be able to navigate the floor off the bounce. And in the event he gets fouled, he's got to go to the line and sink free throws. And lastly, but certainly at least, has exhibited what I call that clutch dream. He mm. wants the ball in that moment to win or lose a basketball game. So I'm gonna start with the parking lot player and that's Steph Curry. We've seen him do it time and time again. Uh, he His range is unlimited as we know. He embraces those moments and he's a four-time champion. So I'm gonna trust him with my basketball. That's number one. Game. Number that's, one on your that's, list. That's, that's number one on my list. Yes, sir. N- number two, I'm gonna have to go to Kevin Durant. You know, drafted him years ago. He is probably the best all-around scorer still in the game today. Seven feet, so he can get a shot over people when he needs to. You know, it's, it's gonna be hard to put anybody on him. Again, knows how to get to the spot he wants to get to and score the basketball. And if you follow him, those two free throws are gonna go in. Number three, Jason Tatum. Jason Tatum, uh, we've watched him grow over the past few years. You know, his Celtics teams have been, you know, challenging for the Eastern Conference over the last four or five years, made the finals uh, two years ago. And a lot of that was due to his late game heroics. And again, another guy who can score on all five, uh, all three levels, you know, three point mid range, getting all the way to the basket. The up and comer, number four, Anthony Edwards. Mm. Uh, I think we we watched him really grow into that role this summer over in the world games. Um, But you're seeing him do it night in and night out for the Timberwolves now. He wants that basketball. He believes in himself. I, th- you know, I think he's got ice water running through his veins as well, and super athletic, and he's strong, and so he can create space um, when he needs to create space to get his shot off uh, in a late game situation. And lastly, I'm gonna go with Luka Doncic. Again, another guy who embraces that moment. He's been carrying the Dallas Mavericks uh, since he's been there in these type of situations. And so he rounds out my top five. That's a very, very solid list. For reference, last season's Clutch Player of the Year was De'Aaron Fox of the Sacramento Kings. Second place went to Jimmy Butler. Third place went to DeMar DeRozan. Fourth place was Jalen Brunson of your New York Knicks. And fifth place was Joel Embiid. 
interestingly, not one of those guys on the list right now. BJ, how about you? Game on the line. Who you got? Well, I, I mean, listen. I think I got a little pushback on this list. Just a little bit. Okay. okay. Um, <laughs> but I, I think the list is, I think the list is exceptional. I, and when I say pushback, not that I don't, I think I just rearrange the list. You know, it's very difficult to score when you know all of the other nine players know where that ball is going. So I, I, I think that's very, very difficult. And as great of a shooter as Steph Curry is, I think it's he probably has the most difficult out of the list because of his inability. He can't just post up and receive the ball below the free throw line in a high-pressure situation, right? I don't think... You know, probably on this list right now, there's only two players I feel that can actually receive the ball below the free throw line. Luka Doncic is so fascinating is because he's so strong. He fights for a position on the floor and he probably learned that because he's probably the least athletic of everyone on the list. But my number one guy would be KD. Because he. He can just he's open the moment he gets the ball. So KD, I think, would be number one for, for, for me at this particular time. Number two would probably be Luka Doncic. Okay. Reason being, he probably can, he's probably the best guy on this list that could actually receive the ball, post up anybody, plays through the contact, and he's just an exceptional score from from great distance, along with his ability to get to the basket, get to the free throw line, so forth and so on. Third on my list would be Ant-Man. Just because he's another guy now, a terrific athlete. However, he can score this basketball and he can get the ball below the free throw line. And we know he can take advantage and overwhelm you with this athletic ability. I think he's probably as fascinating. I thought about him and Devin Booker. But I think he may be able to play just a little bit through the contact and play and get to the line. But I but I I wanted to just make sure, you know, because Devin Booker is an exceptional score as well. Fourth on my list would be Curry. Just because he demands a double team, even though he can't just get put him in isolation, he probably is he's not as good of an isolation player as the other guys. However, his ability to play off the ball in that system will cause havoc on the defense because of his ability to move without the ball. And you have Draymond and all the other things that they're doing for him. And I just think he is a phenomenal, phenomenal player, probably the end game, just with his ability to move around and play without the ball. And finally, I, I agree with, with Jason Tatum. Jason Tatum is a terrific, terrific offensive player. And he's shown his ability to catch the ball, score from different areas on the floor. I mean, he can score in the middle of the court, definitely on the side, so forth and so on. And he has exceptional size. I think the one thing you underestimate when you look at a Jason Tatum is his length. I mean, Jason Tatum is probably, what, 6'9", 6'10", somewhere around there. Yeah. So, you know, he's just he's probably a smaller version of Kevin Durant right now. Um, so I, I think the list, I agree with the list. You know, some of the guys I was thinking on the list, I was like, Jokic is one yep. of the guys I was like struggling with. Uh, I mentioned Devin Booker, you know, here earlier. 
Uh, Joel Embiid mm-hmm. is another guy. Probably doesn't shoot it as well from the free throw line. Um, but overall, I agree with the list as is. I think you, 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 that was one of the things that I I kind of didn't take into account Embiid and Jokic, the post guys, because mm-hmm. I was looking at it as someone's going to have to get them the basketball. Right. You know, right. To, 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 you know, so I kind of took them out, but love those guys in those situations. So I just took guys that, and I kind of took the question as the guy has the ball at the top of the key and we've kind of flattened the thing out. You know, we, mm-hmm. we've tried to, the ball is in the Yeah, like they used to do seconds. for you all the time. Like, we exactly. Used to, like, 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 that's what we did. That's what we did for Parking Lot Ferry. That's what we did exactly. for Parking Lot Ferry. We just give them the ball. One full flight, huh? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, so, you, so I, I, that's why I lean towards the guy who truly is a parking lot player. Exactly. <laughs> I, I think it's interesting that, you know, talking about those game winners and shooting from way deep, Dame Lillard didn't make either of your lists. Kyrie Irving and other oh. players hit huge shots from the perimeter in his career. And you're right, taking the example of scoring from the perimeter, one interesting aspect to it is, you know, BJ, your friend Trent Tucker, you have the Trent Tucker rule where yes. a player needs 0.3 seconds on the clock in right, order to right. get a catch and shoot off. But in a situation where it's 0.2 seconds, a player who's not on the list right now, but will be very soon, when Banyama, we've got to go there. Because if it's 0.2 seconds and you need a tip in, Ain't no one getting the ball from up in the sky like he is, right? Um, I think to your point, Scott, Jokic has hit a bunch of shots. If you remember the Lakers series last year in the playoffs, I think he had like three or four shots at the buzzer at the end of various quarters, at the end of various shot clocks, where he's shooting like a one-legged three-pointer after bringing the ball up, just fading away from the hoop at a ridiculous rate. I think Shager Alexander is another clutch player. I think it's very yes. tough. I think it depends on the situation. Are you playing off a live ball? Are you playing off an inbounds? You know, what's right. the what's the score? Do you need a three? Do you need a two? Like, if it's a tie game, you just need a bucket. Maybe I won't have Steph Curry on my list. But if I'm down three, I'd 100% have Steph Curry on my list. But those mm-hmm. are the top five clutch players. Let us know in the Discord or on social media what you guys at home think. Who would be in your top five for the clutch players. Well, BJ, as you know, on Friday, we celebrated 25 years of NBA 2K. And over the weekend, my favorite game mode, my team, released some new players. A new pack has come out with some new players in. We're going to run through the players that have been added that you can go and get on my team now on NBA 2K24. I'm going to give you seven names. And I'm going to ask you in true my team fashion to create a starting five. You think you're ready? I stay ready, Mo, so I'd have to get ready. (laughs) Well, I, I, well, we I, start off. I got 25 years in the game. Okay. I got okay. 25 we'll, years in we'll the game. We'll see how your squad does. Uh, we start off with a diamond 92 overall rated Kevin Garnett, my favorite player. So, KG. We've also got some Amethyst cards who are all 90 overall. We've got Lonzo Ball. We've got Rashad Lewis. We've got Hidu Turgaloo. And we've got Mikael Bridges. And then there's a couple Ruby players who are 87 overalls. That's Doug Christie and Otis Thorpe. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay. This is this okay. is the beauty of my team, BJ, because you get, like, everyone can play the normal game mode where you play with LeBron and Steph Curry. But with my team, you can get names you never expected. You can get Haidu Turgaloo, who's a 90 overall, who can come in and shoot the lights up your team. So with those seven names, BJ, give me your starting five. Um, I would imagine because of 
the game itself that shooting would be a priority. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> shooting is a premium in NBA 2K. Yeah, I would imagine. You know, as I'm long just, as you've got good internet, because <laughs> I had yeah. some bad internet for a number of years and my stream used to roast me for missing jump shots, but now we got the fiber optic. We all could. Okay, so with that, I'm going to say Turgaloo is a must. At a three or the four? I'm going to put him at my, at, well, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to put him at, at the three. Okay. That's I'm a mighty team at legend three. at the three. Okay. Tur- so you got Turgaloo. Who are you running four, with? I think I'm going to put Garnett. KG, the big ticket. Okay. Versatile, at, can do everything okay. on defense. At the two, because of shooting, Mikhail Bridges. I'm going to put him at the two. He's going to hit you with the celebration. Okay, at the well, yeah, yeah, oh yeah. He's don't hurt the, your neck. He's don't, got the celebration. Hey, yeah. <laughs> hey, yo. uh, yeah. Don't hurt your neck. Well, hey, yo. uh, we need you tomorrow on the show. At the well, we only have one guard. If I unless I miss someone, you know, we get we had to get take Lonzo Ball, right? You could put Lonzo in there, yeah. And then at the five, then, I'm gonna go with Charlotte Lewis because shooting. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna play small. No ball. Otis Thorpe, huh? No Doug Christian. Well, I love OT, but uh, but it's it's a game where I I, I started off my team saying shooting, shooting. is a okay. okay, well, so so, so yeah. I think most fans know Kevin Garnett. Everyone knows Lonzo Ball, Mikael Bridges, Rashad Lewis, and Hidu Turgaloo. I think more fans would know them because of their time with right. the Magic, for example, and their three point shooting and their offense. But can you just tell the listeners a little bit about Otis Thorpe and a little bit about Doug Christie? Okay, I'll start off with Doug Christie. Doug Christie was a really, really good player. Um, he was a he was a bigger two guard. He's around six, 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 seven, long, athletic, defensive. He was a defensive minded player. He really played well, very skilled. He was a kind of a jack of all trades. He could mimic the point guard position. He he really was. He was a glue guy. You know, that's what they kind of term him today. Yeah, he was first team more defense. Yeah, he could really defend. He could he could defend multiple positions, really chase around screens. But he had length. Really good player, good teammate because he he did all of the things that you needed to do to win to win and play. I think he's still coaching right now for the Sacramento Kings, if I remember. Yep, correctly. that's right. He is. Yeah, and um, he's a really good player, tough player. Uh, you know, I remember watching him playing against him many years, watching him play against those. Those uh, Laker teams. I mean, he guarded. He was the primary defender on Kobe Bryant. So mm-hmm. I mean, you can, and you know, I mean, he didn't really need a double team. I mean, he guarded all those guys. He guarded all the elite two guards in the league at that particular time. Really, really good player. Otis Thorpe. You know, when you say, uh, I mean, he was just, um, he was, he was, you know, that that was a different era of basketball. Okay, you you know that you had like. You know, you say there's physical players and then there's like a man's man. Like Otis <laughs> Thorpe was like, <laughs> like Otis Thorpe set a screen on you and you knew he gave you a little something extra, but you just didn't say anything to him because he was just so strong and so physical. He wasn't a dirty player, but he's a very physical player. I mean, he was tough, strong. I mean, he probably doesn't like anybody who was less than 6'5". He's about 6'10". I mean, he just, he would just crush you if you came in there. If you started trying to like go at like Kenny Smith and these guys and try to go at him. He would just lay you flat out. You know, he, he was just yeah, brick you know, wall he, hall of fame. Yeah. He was, he was, <laughs> he had huge hands. I remember he was, he would always dunk, you know, he would do like the statue of Liberty dunk. Um, just, 
he was just a physical player. I mean, he was a he was a championship caliber player. I think he did win a championship. Some ninety four Rockets. Yeah, he was. A really and then they traded good... him for Clyde Drexler the next year. To yeah, he was again. a yeah, very good so, athlete. So think about and, how good you uh, got to be to be traded for Clyde Drexler, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was like I said, he was. I mean, he was a great complementary player to Akeem Olajuwon because if the game ever got physical, OT, you know, that's what most of us called him. He would take care of all of the physical, cal- you know, the physical things that were happening during the course of the game. I mean, you had him, Charles Oakley, Buck Williams, you know, all those guys were, I mean, they just lay you out. I mean, when you watch guys set screens today and you just go, okay, what is this? I mean, these guys would set, they would just they would just try to flatten you out. You know what I mean? You had the <laughs> Rick Mahorns, <laughs> you know, uh, Jeff Rulins, all those guys, you know. Well, I, you I, you I, need I, those, as much as you need shooting in my team, you need those screen tests to get yeah, open the, for the threes. Yeah, you well, know, if you're those a point guard, to get open. Those guys made sure they got you open. I can tell you that. Absolutely. They were, they, he was a, those, those are two really good players that played in that era. Uh, probably not as well known as some of the others but very well respected and um, throughout the league. And, and certainly it was a joy playing against both of them. Well, if you want to play with these guys, make sure you hit the link in the description to get your copy of NBA 2K24. Hit me on PlayStation. You can run online with me and I'll see you guys on the court. Now, Scott, we've got you on the show. We're very thankful to have you here. And um, you obviously recently spent a lot of time as a general manager in and around the association. So BJ and I want to use this opportunity to share your insight with the fans as much as possible. And I've got a question. Um, You know, we all know what GMs do when it comes to the draft process and scouting talent or when it comes to the trade deadline. But at a time of year like this, right, it's like a couple of weeks into the season, you're still evaluating where your team's at. You know, as BJ says, you need 20, 25 games to figure them out. It's too far away from the trade deadline, perhaps, to start looking at moves. But what does the day-to-day look like for a general manager in the NBA at this time of year in between kind of November, December, January? Well, first of all, Mo, I would say it's not too early to start looking at potential moves. See, once you get into training camp, as you mentioned, your work from the summer is complete. You've you know, you've executed your draft, you've done your free agent signings and whatever trades, if you've done any trades have occurred. So now you are watching, you around your team every single day throughout training camp, throughout the preseason. Um, I was always huge. And, you know, this goes back to uh, when I first started in the NBA in Detroit, you know, watching Joe Dumas do this, travel all the time with the team, because what you want to be doing right now is really getting the pulse of your group, getting the feel for the personalities, see who has improved from a year ago if if it's a returning player. If it's one of your new players, how is he fitting in uh, with the group? So I think it's hugely important to know your own environment. And this is the time that you're doing that to really hone in on that aspect uh, of the job so that as you start looking ahead to what you may need to bring in, what may not be fitting with your roster, who you may be looking to move out. Um, That is going on right now. Also, I think you start preparing a a series of meetings uh, with your pro scouts and and making sure that they're out watching a lot of pro basketball right now, getting a lot of intel on the various players that are seeing around the team and kind of, 
gleaning and gathering information about who may be potentially on the trade block. Uh, I think that's an important thing. So this this is the big part of your job right now. You're not really um, dialed in heavy to the scouting point uh, part of college basketball, even though college basketball is getting ready to get started. Um, I would be getting, you know, having meetings with college scouts just to kind of find out who's going to be on the radar. You start developing your schedule to how you can fit in opportunities to go out and scout collegiate players for the draft uh, that will be, you know, forthcoming about seven, eight months from now. So uh, a lot of that's going on now, but again, really singular focused on understanding your team, where you're at, uh, where that potential is to go and what you're going to need to add if you're going to make a big push, if you're trying to make a big push uh, later in the year and have a, a deep playoff run. BJ, uh, some of the listeners may not know, you also spent some time in an NBA front office. You spent some time with the Bulls, mm-hmm. um, working as a special assistant to Jerry Krause and amongst other roles that you did over there. What was your kind of day-to-day during a regular season looking like? Well, you're just actively trying to find the chemistry of your group. And a lot of times you will have a an idea or you will have a thought of how your team should come together. Sometimes you'll have, you know, unexpected things that will happen. You'll be like, I didn't expect this player to be in the rotation at this particular stage. You, someone may, you know, you may have an injury that occurs in preseason that carries over into the season. You may have a team that's underperforming. So there are a lot of variables that, you know, can occur as the, especially early part of the season, because this is the first time that you actually are witnessing what you've put together. You know, most, you know, I don't know if Scott touched on it. I don't think Scott touched on it, but most, you know, executives, they'll have their group come together. They'll try to find the idea or the the right vision, I should say, that they, you know, that this group will have. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't work. Injuries do occur. Maybe there is a, you know, a player will make a jump. Sometimes, unfortunately, guys don't come back in condition. Sometimes, you know, coaches may have different ideas of the way the team goes. So there's a lot of things that play out. However, you know, the 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 GM or the executive is tasked with trying to figure out, you know, what's best for the team in the future, right? You want to have the young guys on the right path. You want to have clearly a team that can compete right now. And then you want to start looking at how to get your team better because you know what the other teams are doing. You know, at, as much as you're looking at your team, you know, Scott knows this. There's a reason that if you want to be a great executive, you have to know the rest of the league as well as knowing your own team, okay? No one should know your team better than you, first of all. And and, and Scott alluded to that. You know, it, it's a new thing. Back when I played, the GMs weren't traveling with the teams each and every day. That was a new occurrence because of, you know, someone got the idea that maybe they should start finding out what's going on with their teams. And to me, that was a positive thing. However, the hard part is as you're watching your team, the other teams are telling you, for instance, how to defend your best player. 
how to defend and take away the strengths of your team. And then Scott and these executives have to figure out internally, oh, wow, teams think we they can attack us internally. We, we thought we were going to be a good interior defensive team, but we're not. And you have to see that and then make a, make these things accordingly. You know, one of the great moves that was made here recently, in my opinion, is when Scott Perry and Joe Dumars and these guys, somehow they addressed and was able to pull this off. They got uh, Rasheed Wallace during the course of the year. After he had, if I remember correctly, Scott, he had already been traded in the yes. trade deadline, correct? Yeah, so yes. mm-hmm. they had identified a player that they felt would help their group to push them over the top. So this is a very complicated and sophisticated way to do it. I mean, it requires you to be there every day, every practice, watching the teams and getting to the games early is really, really important. And talking around the league, talking to your scouts, advanced, your advanced scouts, watching college, putting all this information together, Mo, which is fun for us during the trade deadline because we just get to talk about, <laughs> oh, that's that was an awful trade. Believe mm-hmm. it or not. These guys are putting in months and months of work for that one day. And it involves a lot of people, a lot of scouting, a lot of time. And sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. But when they do work, it's it's a phenomenal thing because you're constantly looking for ways to improve your group. So when you've identified a player, for example, Rashid Wallace, um, when you've identified that player that you want on your team, do you then have a list of, okay, well, if we can't get him, then this is the alternative. And if we can't get him, then this is the alternative who plays all a similar role. And once you do have that player identified, where how do you decide where you draw the line on what you're willing to part with from your team in a trade? Because you might say, we're willing to give up this player and this many picks. The team comes back and they want more picks or they want a different player. How do you evaluate that and how necessary acquiring that player would be in exchange for whatever assets you have. I mean, quickly, Mo, and, and simply, you have to assess, and this is where, where it comes into being so important of really knowing your basketball team. You got to remember, when you trade for a player, you're not just trading for a skill set. You're trading for the person, too. They're coming in together. So once you've made that determination of his skill set and his personality. Now you say, okay, I am willing to give up this much to bring this player and person into my building. And, but I'm a, I'm a, you, you have to set a limit to that and you have to be disciplined to stick to that. So you, the overarching theme is, what you are sending out and what you're receiving in return is what you're receiving in return from where you sit that day when you make that trade, you believe that's going to make you a better basketball team, you go ahead and pull the trigger on that trade. Now, if you feel what you're bringing in and what you're sending out is going to either keep us the same or a chance of not working at all, then you, you got to hold firm and don't do it. You know, BJ alluded to it just a minute ago. There's a lot of noise around the trade deadline and pe- and the, the fan base wants to see deals. <laughs> and you have to fight the, you have to fight the urge sometime as an executive that I just need, I'm going to do a deal just to do a deal because people believe that 
I'm working them when I make trades. Sometimes the best trades you make are trades you don't make. They don't happen. And so you can't get overzealous is what I'm saying um, in, in, in these type situations. And, and that's what I've always been uh, guided by throughout the course of my career. Hey, Scott, I wanted to ask you here, because you, you, you alluded to this, and I think it's very important. As an as an executive, which I've said on that side, but as an agent, yes, you trade these players. You're looking at skill sets. We look at you know things like a recent trade with Damian Lillard and and Drew Holiday, right? You you see all the movement, and they're the big names. But let's talk about the people, because that's a very difficult thing. Talk about when you make this trade, the person that you're trading. And how do you notify this person? Because a lot of times, unfortunately, some of these players do find out they got traded over <laughs> social media or different platforms. So what is your process in trading? Because there is a person behind that uniform and you're trading people. And Scott, the last is their families, because you and I both know and we get a chance to know their family, develop relationships with their family and how difficult that is as an executive. Yeah, excellent question. And that is probably the toughest part of the job when you're having to trade a young man and his family away from your team, away from the city, especially if they've been there for a while and they really like being there. You know, they've got kids going to school. There's a lot that's going on there. And I have always been a person that tries to put myself in someone else's shoes. So I always try to put myself in the player's shoes. If I was the one getting ready to be traded, I would at least want to hear directly from the powers that be, the executives that be first before I heard about it on, you know, Sports Center or saw it in the tweet. I think you owe that to the players as best you can to now you, it, you can't control when you're having conversations with other teams and you say you maybe let his agent know what's going on, what they're going to do with that information. I tried to always in conversations though, during a trade with partic that particular team or teams, if it's a multi-team trade and his agent, look, the first that needs to know about this is the player himself and you know and 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 and, and we're notifying the agent out of respect to that player so that he knows because he has a job you know it's, it's tough on the agent if he learns about the trade through the internet too because now he's going that agent is going to look at your organization uh quite differently so um I just do my very best. I've always done my very best to uh, keep it in that very tight circle. And then once I've informed the player, then, okay, the media um, information um, buzz, you know, it's going to happen then. And then I, you know, I can be in a position to confirm said trade, but I think it is ultimately, it, it says a lot about your organization to me. Uh, if you're able to um, and make it a practice at talking to these players first 
so that they know what's going to happen. You can, you know, wish them well. You can explain to them you're thinking if they want that explanation. Usually, you know, they don't. But uh, the guys that I, I've been in position of trader have been all have been very appreciative that they had heard from me first before um, reading about it uh, on on social media. Um, you know, when you talk about notifying the players, at what part of the trade process do you usually tell these guys? Is it we're thinking of trading you or we've got this offer for you or is it when the deal is done? Because, for example, when you guys traded for Josh Hart last season, he was on the court warming up um, for the Portland Trailblazers, right? And then mm -hmm. the news came through that he was traded. Um, so at what stage in the process do you actually let them know that there might well, be a move or there is a move? You know, I don't... I would never tell a player um, before a deal is agreed upon or agreed upon in principle, um, because what you don't want to do is go to the player and say, Hey, we're going to trade you to team a over here. And then 12 hours later, team a backs out the deal and the player is still with you. Like the Celtics uh, then that put, Brockton in the summer. <laughs> that puts you, that puts you in a difficult situation. Uh, because then that player knows, okay, you were trying to trade me. And, you know, let me take, again, my process. I've had players over the years, over my 23 years, come to me because, they, you know, there's a lot of rumors that are circulated from year to year about a potential player getting traded. And I've had conversations with players that come say, hey, are you looking to trade me? Now, this may be well before something is happening. And then I would just tell them, I said, look, Everybody in this league at some point can or will be traded. And I said, if there are people that are interested in you, don't, you know, take that as a good thing. What you don't want is when nobody's calling interested in trading for you, that means you have no market value. You probably will be out the league. So I try to educate guys when they come to me about the whole process. And, and so that, and educate them on my job that look, part of my job is I receive a lot of phone calls throughout the year inquiring about players. You know, that's general managers jobs all across the league. They just call to have conversations and, you know, what would you do with this player? What would you think about this player? And there's a lot of conversations that ultimately don't end up being actionable, but they're more information gathering that general managers do and so what ends up happening that kind of stuff gets leaked out players start hearing about it so i i just i'm always been a person believe in telling the truth telling it like it is and i know that is contrary to what a lot of people hear that maybe a lot of guys aren't being very truthful i just find that's been my lane i'm gonna always be up front with these players and their representatives and let the chips fall where they may from there. Let me let me just ask you real quick. Um, you know, you just mentioned phone calls. Do the 30 general managers in the NBA have a group chat? And anyone ever put in, <laughs> we're willing to move these two second round picks in 2027. Does anyone want them? Or is it always direct phone calls? No. Because if I was GM, I'm just making a group chat. Who wants mm -hmm. these picks? Give me your best offer. <laughs> You got 20 I, Mo, minutes. Mo, I'm, I'm going to 
I'm not aware of anything like that. And I'm going to caution you when, you when you become a GM, because I know that's one of your goals. I would not necessarily recommend that <laughs> for, for a number of reasons. But um, yeah, so you, you, you um, I have not been a part of that. I think most of the conversations have, have always been, um, have always been, you know, one-to-one, uh, if you're going to do a multi-team trade, you know, eventually you'll get on with all the teams and, you know, discuss parameters of the deal you've been talking about. You know, you know, you know one of the things that's when you come into this league more as a young player, very rarely does, is anyone that walks into this business on day one a professional. You're coming in based basically on your, on your potential as a player or on the court. However, you, you know, we've talked about it here earlier that there's the player and then there's the person. It's important that these executives understand what it looks like from a player's perspective, but it's also very important that these players understand what it looks like from an executive's perspective. And one of the more important lessons that you learn on your journey to become a professional is that what is the role and the business of basketball that Scott Perry and these executives have to their group. And that is, you have to understand Scott Perry's goal every day is to figure out how to improve his team. He's got to improve his team through the draft. He's got to try to improve his team, team through trades, free agency, and most importantly, from within. And he has to constantly make that evaluation. So when you understand that as a player, it is understood that he is going to feel calls every day on his behalf. I can remember my first professional. I remember my very first professional talk with another player. And that, that talk was with Bill Carwright. I remember back then, Mo, we used to get our information from the newspaper. Okay. That was, you have no idea about that. Okay. <laughs> you <should have> to, <laughs> most of our listeners probably have no idea. Believe yeah. it or not, Mo, there was, social yeah. media wasn't around back then. You would get your information for the paper the next day. You couldn't wait to do it, right? There used to be, mm-hmm. what was it, Hoop Du Jour and all these things that would come out on Sunday. And that mm-hmm. was the big news, Mo. It was, it was, oh, wow, that hurt this and such and such. You know, once a week. Now we do it yeah. once on the hour, every hour now. And I remember my the very first time that my name was circulating in a trade rumor. And it hit me, I had never experienced that before. And I remember Bill Cartwright sitting me down and he said, the moment you don't see your name in these articles, that's when you should get really nervous because that means you're going to be out of the league. Mm-hmm. And that was the, it was like, it was so mind blowing to me that you wanted to see your name in trades because that meant that you had value in the league. That meant that you could actually people were taking notice of you. So, you know, players, when I see players get upset about getting traded, I always think, wow, no one has taken the time to explain to them what it means to be a professional in this league. Cause there's only so many jobs. So, from that moment on, I always took it 
from that moment on, now that happened in my rookie year. I always tried to get my name in the trade conversations because that meant that I was doing something right. And I always wanted to make it for the executives that I played for to say, no, we value him here. Because when they don't call and ask about you, that's a really bad, that's a bad thing because yeah. now you know you've probably made a mistake in drafting that player. <laughs> and you know, and then Mo, you know, that second round pick mode that you're trying to get rid of in a group chat. Yeah, no one yeah. is no no one's even biting yeah. on that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that, that so, group chat's not gonna help you, Mo. <laughs> yeah, it's not gonna help you. But Scott, I wanted to ask you this quick question. We have this new phenomenon that's happened over the last about 15 years. And I've been waiting to ask you this. And, and and I don't even know if you can answer it. However, I want to see if you can, you know, take a take a bite at it. Talk about these disgruntled superstars now. <laughs> what, <laughs> that what seems to be no, 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 Scott. It's a, this is a new phenomenon because mm-hmm. in our generation, the star player was the guy who took on the responsibility and accountability. You wanted to be with an organization for as long as you could. That meant something to our generation. However, mm-hmm. that has changed. They, I mean, they've done, you know, it's a, it's a 180 now. What, Scott, how would you, how do you, how do you address that where now teams are looking for a disgruntled star because they're, culture is so great that everyone wants to come play for them. How do we address that now? Man, that is a tough and complex question. (laughs) One thing I would say, you know, this was talking with someone actually in professional football a while ago. If a guy's disgruntled somewhere else, what makes you think he won't be disgruntled when he comes to you? Mm. No, James Hawks. <laughs> Sorry, I'm God, just, I'm, I'm, just so I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Uh, and so, but you hear this as a strategy now that okay, we'll just be prepared for the next disgruntled superstar. And I guess the disgruntled part, these disgruntled superstars would argue is that well the team that I'm currently on is not doing enough to try to win and get me to a championship. So I need to go to place B to get their championship. But again, like there's an old saying, you know, the grass isn't always green on the other side of the fence. You know, we like to, to think that it is just change for the sake of change. So I don't think me personally, you have to proceed with real caution because I, you know, uh, when I had that person tell me that, that uh, a disgruntled player and another team, there's no guarantee that he's going to be, you know, become not disgruntled when he comes to your team. I don't have that big of a, I have a I have a strong belief in the environments that that I'm a, have always been a part of and and and, and tried to help fostering and building um, a great you know everybody uses that word culture but a great place to go to work on a daily basis let's put it that way so I have extreme confidence in that in my ability but I don't have the um, 
the arrogance necessarily to believe that, okay, you just, the, the guy's going to come to our place and he's, he's going to be just happy because um, I like when players and people in general try to figure out how they can make the most of the situation they're in. And when you look at these these disgruntled stars, how many of them have left a situation where everything was catered around them and to them and gone to the new situation and it was the exact same thing for them? Very rarely does that happen. They're looking for something. They, they want to move to the new place, but yet bring all of the attention and, and all the things they were getting at the old place of being quote unquote, the star of the, uh, of that team. But when they go to the new team, it's not quite the same for them. I mean, it's been very rare, you know, I mean, and, you know, everyone likes to look back at LeBron years ago, but LeBron wasn't, you know, LeBron left as a free agent when he went to Miami. That's different. He went there. That was, that was a choice. That he was able to make, but the guys that have been traded, you know, I've been part, of, you know, the White Howard when he first got to Orlando, he was the he was the Orlando Magic when we were coming in the door. Ever since the White, you know, wanted to be traded and been gone from there, again, not to pick on him, but what has his career looked like? He's been searching for what he had in Orlando the entire time, so. Interesting dynamic. I hope that answered that question uh, well enough. Absolutely. I mean, it's one of those things that you've seen and we're continuing to see. And it's kind of like, oh, yeah, that's just like part of the NBA culture. However, we all know in the business how difficult that is to establish the dynamics to build a team around a player. Whether he gets traded at the trade deadline or big trade in the summer or what have you. That's an interesting dynamic because you're bringing, you know, when to get these players, first of all, you you know, because we value them or look at them as superstars. So you got to give up a substantial amount, whether it's multiple players like we just saw with James Harden. And you look at Philadelphia right now. Philadelphia, arguably, Scott, might be the best team in the Eastern Conference right now. Well, so absolutely. a lot of times you're better by subtraction with these trades. So this is very complex, but I think you touched on it. I mean, it's it's fun for us and the fans and talking and it gives us things to talk about and gets big headlines. However, very rarely do these things succeed because of everything that you alluded to. Well, this is what I wanted to get to. You know, every week we come here and we talk about the team or the player that we're going to focus on looking at in the upcoming week. And for me, that has to be the LA Clippers. You know, the Sixers are on like a seven-game undefeated stretch. Meanwhile, James Harden and the Clippers are 0-4 since he arrived there. I want to know from you guys, do you think, you know, I know it's going to take time for them to gel and find out how they're going to play, and you can't expect instant results. But from what you've seen so far, do you think this is going to work out at all and the Clippers are really going to make a deep playoff run? Or are the early signs already showing you that this just is not a good fit? Well, I'm going to say, first of all, I'm not going to push the panic button yet. Three games in, um, super early. But I do have concerns. 
right now. And one of the, because as I look at this team now, you've got four star players, arguably all will be Hall of Famers one day. But the youngest of them is Kawhi Leonard at 32 years old. None of them, I would deem, are in their prime. Um, so that's the first concern that I have. Number two, who's the leader on the floor for the group? See, a lot is being put on Ty Lue to, to provide the leadership, and Ty's a, an excellent coach, one of the top coaches in the league. But it's a lot to ask of him when you don't have a natural leader on the floor. Who of those four guys, I ask you guys, is the is the vocal leader of that team it's to bring Russell guys Westbrook. together? It can't, yeah. You know, James Harden's coming in the door and he's talking about that he is the, the system. system. <laughs> so, I mean, he's not going to, and he's been to, was this his third, fourth team in two years or whatever? So he's not going to be able to be that. Russell Westbrook is playing his heart out. And he, you know, Russ is is who he is. He is a high-level competitor. But can he bring that group together? Kawhi Leonard, I think, is the most talented of the group. And he's the one who's uh, been a champion of that group. But he's quiet by nature. And he's been injured a lot. So, again, unless he can really stay healthy for the entire season. Maybe he can uh, grow into that role a little more. And then, uh, you know, Paul George, very talented player, but he's never been a leader of a team that's gone deep into uh, deep into the playoffs. So that's well, concerning Pacers, for me. In, the Eastern the, Conference Finals when he was uh, yeah, on the Pacers. Yeah, but he had a good balanced group there with the Pacers. At least, you know, that uh, the big fella, Roy Hibbert was there at that time. You had uh, uh, David West, who really was the leader of that team and brought the toughness and edge and allowed Paul to be that talent. And, you know, they were very well coached as well. So, um, and then I would just uh, also worry a little bit about them defensively uh, at the starting five as a group. And what, as I watch them, they're going to have to figure out, because I, I, I agree in starting all four of them together. I don't think you can ask any of those guys to come off the bench right now, but I do think you got to figure out the division of labor between Harden and Westbrook in terms of who's going to anchor that second unit, which guy are you going to take out earlier uh, during the course of the game so that he can get more minutes with the second group and really anchor that group. And that's something, the question that they're going to have to answer who can, so they can get a lot out of that uh, second unit brigade as well and allow that player to maybe express himself more during those minutes versus when all four of them are together. Yeah, I, I, I would piggyback on that and say the following. If you're going to be a good team and the Clippers are a team, at the beginning of the year, some thought that they could compete with the group that they currently had coming out of the Western Conference. You know, I mean, when you look at their team, certainly we can all say, I think there was an argument to be made that they were as good as anybody in the Western Conference. They yeah, can the issue has just been health. That yes. Every year it's been health. It's not yes, been the I team. Mean, 
when you look at the four teams out here in the state of California, there's a big argument that they're the best team in the state. There's a best team. They're the best team or one of the top teams as is. Certainly now, suddenly they make this trade with James Harden three or four games into the season. And all of a sudden you're saying, okay, if you're going to be a good team, there are three essential things, three essential qualities you have to have. You have to be able to defend. You have to be able to secure the rebound after that great defensive possession. And you have to be able to share the ball. And by the way, we're bringing in a player who hasn't had any training camp <laughs> at all. Didn't go to training camp. I think he may have showed up, but he sat, sat on the sideline. He's coming to a new team. Now we don't know who's the leader, who's the distributor, who's the secondary scorer, how are we going to trade, da-da-da-da-da-da. And by the way, things happen. Plumlee gets hurt, if I remember correctly. He's going to be out for a length of time now with the injury. So suddenly now, this was a big team just two weeks ago with their size and length. And all of a sudden now with James Harden in the, in the starting lineup, now they are a little team. Last night, I saw they took Zubaj out, and they they went with man, I think, in the mm -hmm. second half, and they were down big. So now they've just gone total small ball here, trying to figure out some chemistry with this group. Scott is correct. It's only three or four games in. However, these three or four games will count, especially in the Western Conference at some point. And... We also know this. I don't care how hard you work out in the summer. Nothing replaces in-game conditioning. Nothing is going to replace going through things. You got to have some tough losses along, along the way that say, you know what? We will be a self-correcting group. So I think this group has a lot of challenges ahead. And I don't think there will be enough time because of the age of these players and because they are in a market where suddenly every loss will be compounded now and be analyzed and scrutinized and demonized. And will they be able to handle that? Because it's going to require them as they lose these games, as Scott knows, suddenly now the leader of the group is going to have to be able to field those questions. And who is going to be the leader of the group to keep this boat afloat as they're going through all of this? And I don't know. If the, I see that person there, Russell has probably been since last year because Russell really came in. And I thought, and I, because I live out here, I watch him quite frequently. Russell was probably the one player last year that came in and provided leadership and stability when he got here to the Clippers because Kawhi Leonard and those guys weren't, they were hurt. They were injured. And Russell came in as Scott mentioned, he was a complete he competes. Now you may not you may not agree with his decision making all the time, and that's fair criticism. However, no one has ever questioned this young man's ability to compete, and he's been a leader when he gets on the floor because he competes at such a high level. So, it's going to be fascinating to watch this group. I don't really know what to make of it because chemistry is a real thing. Being able to know your position on a team especially when you have the talent to go get 2025, someone's going to have to take a step back because you can't have those four guys out there playing, playing your turn, my turn type basketball. 
even though I know we we focus on the James Harden, you know, his I don't know, it probably will turn into something on the on on social media. He is a system. <laughs> well, believe it or not, when you're talking about winning a championship, though, you you are you become a well-oiled machine. Everyone takes their role because you don't know when you have to defer. You don't know when you have to step up. And if you just look, they they look just right across the locker room. You know, we all have an example. When Shaq and Kobe were together, there was always a debate who was one and who was two. But the reason they were able to win, you know, consecutive championships with that group was because they were able to figure out when they were together who was one and who was 1A. And a lot of times, you know, you would like to have a player who's just your best player and all the times, but sometimes in some series that doesn't occur. So you need different roles and different players to be flexible enough to step into different roles if you're going to have a successful group. Absolutely. Um, Scott, who's the team or the player that you're going to be looking at this week with a keen eye on? Well, last week it was the Clippers. This week for me, and I may surprise you guys, it's the Indiana Pacers. Mm. I'm so glad because <laughs> I've been telling everyone they are my league pass team right now. They are so exciting. It I want to hear like why. They put up 150 a game, uh, yeah. but Scott, tell me why. Yeah, yeah. No, he, here's why. Currently, they're, they're in first place in the Central Division. I know it's early. They're in third place in the Eastern Conference as a whole. I want to f- see, are they for real? They're leading the league in scoring right now. They have seven guys averaging double figures right now. And the eighth and ninth players are both at nine points a game. So they're getting scoring from a little bit of everybody. Obviously, Tyrese Halliburton is having a terrific year. But I want to see, can they grind out some wins? Can they, you know, how can they defend? Is this sustainable the way they're playing? they're, They're winning with offensive basketball right now and i'm just i want to watch them a little closer to see how they are defensively as a group uh and their ability to be able to grind out wins i'm not sure of that yet so i'm gonna be watching them this week to see if they're just early season pretenders or they if they're or if they're gonna be around for the long haul and uh figure out a way to get into uh, the playoff mix in the East. Well, you know, that's a great call. And that's definitely one of the teams I'll be checking out this week. So actually I I have two teams, but I just want to mention this one team. Now I want to see if the Sixers are going to take the next step. I do want to see if they're going to now send a message to the rest of the league. Are they, do they just have a good week or so, or are they going to say, no, this is who we are. I, I, I definitely want to watch the Sixers because Joel Embiid and this kid, Tyrese Maxey, Mo knows I'm a huge Tyrese Maxey's fan. And to why I love watching young players take the word potential off their name. Tyrese Maxey, I think, I think the kid is an all-star. And to watch him now take this leap has been fun. However, the team, you get, as that surprised me with Scott said, Here's a team that I'm really looking at, the Houston Rockets. <laughs> because Emmy Udoka, you know how you you know how, you know there's a term that that your generation says, well, do you feel me? 
<laughs> suddenly, <laughs> this Houston Rockets team, they're being held accountable. And to me, it's like one of the more beautiful things that I've watched, that I've seen. And you're saying, okay, they they were who they were last year, and whatever happened, and I'm not, whatever. Suddenly now, they're competing, and they're winning, and, and they're winning. And I'm like, okay, what is going on? And the first thing that every executive tries to do is first thing you want to do in this league is defend home court. They are a tough team right now when you come to Houston. And that is the first, and you're like, oh, wow. Like, they beat the Sacramento Kings back-to-back. They beat up on the, I mean, they just beat up on the Lakers. They're for, they're like coming into their own. And I'm like, wow, that was, that was quick, suddenly. So I'm going to watch this team to see who they are. And, and the last thing I'll say I'm a I'm a Dylan Brooks guy. I love players <laughs> like that. I like Dylan Brooks because yeah, does he does he go off a little bit? Yeah, it's a little extreme. However, it, when you have a young team, you have to find an identity, and they found an identity. And the identity is this guy is willing to take on the best player of every team. And, and he's shooting and I, crazy and I, efficient as well. And I respect that. Like mm-hmm. he doesn't. He may not be Ben Wallace. He may not be Dennis. Have he may not be D- Dennis Robin, but he thinks he's that guy, and I respect that. And he's given them an identity, and they're playing and they're competing. And somehow, some way, within the first ten games, they found a little bit of who they are. So I'm gonna watch them to see if is this real. And they win a couple games this week. That's a that was pretty. That's a pretty as Scott knows. That's pretty amazing to watch. Do I think they're going to win a championship? No. But I'm really surprised how quickly they found an identity this part or this early in the season. I mean, I've been saying before he was even drafted, Alperen Sengun is the guy. And you're finally starting to see him get those minutes and make those plays. If you watch the Rockets, you'll know what I'm talking about. But I was actually working on my next YouTube video before this. The title of the video is, Emi Adoka is the best coach in the NBA. And just like last week with my video about the Nuggets, BJ, I'm going to send it over to you and you can tell me what you think later this week on the show. Because I'm saying right now in the NBA, ain't no coach as good as Ima Odoka. And if he never did what he did, we'd have Banner 18 already sitting in Boston. And I will never forgive him. I will never forgive him. But breakdown coming soon to the Hoop Genius YouTube channel. Scott, BJ, thank you again for joining us. It's truly a pleasure every week to have you guys sharing expertise on the show. I'm looking forward to next week already. You guys at home, you can subscribe to the show on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast from. And we'll be back with more uh, from the Hoop Genius podcast. So make sure you stay locked in. It was 25 years of NBA 2K, so get your copy through the link in the description. And most importantly, get buckets. <laughs> <laughs>